Welcome to the third episode of Season 4 of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry Podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. Season 4 of the podcast features lectures written and delivered by Cedar Saigo during his time as a Bagley Wright lecturer. Saigo's lectures plumb the particulars of influence, history, tone, and form to beget a singular autobiography of voice. Across these talks, Saigo explores his childhood on the Suquamish Reservation, his coming to poetry, and the dream of composition. He pays homage to a glittering constellation of postmodernist and revolutionary teachers, artists, and peers, and builds enduring and pointed questions of agency, interdependence, lineage, and transformation. Today we'll hear Not Free from the Memory of Others, a lecture on Joanne Elizabeth Kiger. This talk was originally given at Poets House, November 8th, 2017. Please enjoy. Not Free from the Memory of Others, a lecture on Joanne Elizabeth Kiger. Try very hard. See, it wasn't so hard, but soft and warm to chase the dream. Get worn out, give up again. Hold this vision into a heavenly shield against fear, a wondrous creativity against the bewildered daytime mind find teachings in many realms. April 12th, 1999. Because the book I have been asked to discuss tonight is largely dependent on transcription of Joanne's voice, I wanted to make sure that the delicate unraveling sound of her poetry was also on display with its conjoining tones that suddenly disappear, so dependent on inflection, to then open up to achieve a kind of dispersal in her exit from the poem. Joanne was actually my close collaborator on this project. She carefully went over the first set of proofs, and when she chose to correct something, she always offered up a suggestion. She was a shape-shifting dream to work with, I had trouble starting this lecture. It still feels too soon. But then I found these lines at the end of a poem titled The Persimmons Are Falling from her first book, The Tapestry and the Web. You've built this vast house. Now explore it. Some people have well-lived rooms. I appreciate the chance to discuss There You Are in depth as I fear Joanne's recent death will cause this book to be taken as a final word on her practice, when in fact the book is simply a stopping place that attempts to leave her voice active, open, what words sound like in the actual air. After the manuscript had been completed, I said to my editor, I think we just made a book that points the reader towards several other tiny trembling chapbooks. I say this simply to point out how many gorgeous sequences are not represented in There You Are. Patsquaro Journal, Phenomenological, Not Vera Cruz, God Never Dies, and Year of the Ram. So one is forced to trim the hedge. The best part of being asked to edit this collection was just getting a chance to learn Joanne's history inside and out. She had shared the arc of her story with me in a scattershot style over the years on the phone, through emails, over a million perfectly executed lunches at the home she kept with Donald Gurevich in Bolinas, 
about an hour north up the coast from San Francisco. I felt I had to know her story well enough to know what I could get away with leaving out. We had been close friends for 20 years before any thought of this book had even surfaced. So our histories had become very casually mixed up together. And I think that conflation was interesting to wave. All kinds of poems and letters, portraits, journals, and interviews are jammed together in There You Are, like a tightly trimmed film sequence. Several forms are placed right up against one another and allowed to unfold without the interruption of context. The overall effect is dependent upon several textures of material snaking through the grand design, an inescapable sense of chronology. The book is also meant to offer a glimpse into Joanne's vast and largely untapped archive. It is meant as a kind of backdrop against which her collected poems can be read with utmost pleasure. In an interview conducted in 1997 with Linda Russo, Joanne makes an important distinction between the aesthetics introduced within the Jack Spicer-Robert Duncan circle and the more populist tone that emerged after Ginsburg's first public reading of Howell in 1955. This is Joanne. The beat writers at the time read at the coffee gallery, the bread and wine mission. There's still beatitude that comes out, which was really a po particularly politically inspired forum, but not very good poetry. My practice of writing was a lot stricter, coming from the energy of Spicer and someone like Robert Duncan, who was opposed to the tendency of beat popular poetry writing to let it all dribble out. This may also explain why Joanne is just as often referred to as part of the quote, San Francisco Renaissance. In Communication is Essential, her most straightforward piece of memoir regarding the Spicer-Duncan circle of the late 1950s, she writes, Joe Dunn and John Wieners nickname me Miss Kids because I call everyone kids and invite me to the Sunday afternoon poetry group that Jack Spicer and Robert Duncan were teaching. They usually went like this. Jack and Robert would read whatever current work they were writing. Sometimes Robert would be writing a poem while Jack was reading. Most often, Jack's poems would be addressed to someone there in the group, some of whom had been in his magic class earlier that spring. Then the young writers would read whatever they had written. Jack was a serious listener, and the poem would be, be read two or three times. Does it sound true? These meetings were very lively, with large amounts of red wine being consumed in whatever containers were available, jars, saucepans, etc. Then I was told by George Stanley that, quote, some people are just coming here and treating this like a party. That was me and my friend Nemi. You can take a girl out of Santa Barbara, but you can't take Santa Barbara out of a girl, Jack was always saying. These poetry occasions were not to be considered frivolously, if I was to participate, I would have to read my poem. Joanne is forever enshrined as part of beat mythology for her addictive, witty, and sometimes desolate Japan and India journals, a book she began upon her arrival in Kyoto, 1960, three years after beginning study with Duncan and Spicer. My all-time favorite title for a poem is contained in Joanne's last book, 
I'm very busy now, so I don't have time to answer those questions about beat women poets. She disliked being referred to as an official anything. Buddhist, beat, mentor was another useless term to her. Tracing commonalities of style within a circle of artists always sells every one of them short, when often outright individualism is the force drawing them together. It's fun to read Gary Snyder's account of the trip to India alongside Joanne's journal. Snyder's writing takes the form of a letter to his sister titled A Passage Through India. Near the end of the book, as they prepare to leave India and return home to Japan, Snyder writes, we had stripped down all we could, but were still well loaded. Joanne had left her high heels far behind and was moving with sure and accustomed techniques through all the travel routines. It was a marvel how she managed every time we pulled up for a night to do a laundry, wash her hair, write in her notebook, and study our next day's sightseeing without a hitch. In a piece of memoir on Robert Creeley included in our book, Joanne quotes Tom Clark. It's not what you say as a poet, but how you live as a poet. Her work often shows that these concerns are one and the same, how to adapt and get through this particular day with all of its doubts, its weather, its chores, its private moments, glory or paranoia. Her explicit dating of the poetry, often down to the minute, allows for further investment in the life of the poet unveiling the dramatic and inextricable tie of poetry to survival. This element was already present in the poem she wrote upon her arrival in Japan. It is lonely. I must draw water from the well. Seventy-five buckets for the bath. I mix a drink, gin, fizz water, lemon juice, a spoonful of raspberry jam, and place it in a champagne glass. It is hard work to make the bath, and my winter clothes are dusty and should be put away in storage. Have I lost all values, I wonder? The world is slippery to hold on to when you begin to deny it. Outside, outside, are the crickets and frogs in the rice fields, large black butterflies like birds. I knew I would be forced to condense several facets of her story and that the poetry included in this book would have to be emblematic of her timeline. So I chose to set two poems written in Japan against a set of her journal entries that detail the Indian leg of the trip. In addition to Spicer's book-length letter, there are also Joanne's photographs, Allen Ginsberg's photos with his candid and charming handwritten captions, as well as recently published writings of Peter Orlovsky's that add further mythic dimensions, the kind of edges that are only gained through retelling and a chorus of voices. I tend to see all four poets trudging along as action figures when reading Spider Snyder's book especially. I'm kind of shocked their journey hasn't been optioned by a Hollywood producer yet. I recently re-entered into their trip while reading this poem from Joanne's 2015 collection, On Time. Belongs to everyone. Just read through my entire four years in the Japan Journal. It took about 20 minutes, and the incident I hoped to find was never written down. What color robes shall I wear? Oh, something to match your hair. 
always now enjoying the moment, waiting for rain, which has already arrived. October 27, 2010, thinking about Kosan, Morinaga Roshi. I love how she toys with the memory and so-called permanence of her journal here, how the recounting of time can be crushed down to 20 minutes. If the question of the color of her robes has not been written down, she writes it now, always now. Journals can allow us to step back into the moment, remembering waiting for rain in Kyoto back then, looking up and out to see the raindrops in present-day Bolinas. The poem leaves the door open between the edge of past and present, the adventure of the self and what is accidentally left out. It was charming to realize the form of this poem is a portal. It feels wonderful to use it now. Joanne parted with Snyder and sailed home from Japan in 1964. The last entry of the Japan India journals tells us that Philip Whalen was the only one waiting for her when the boat docked back in San Francisco. I come back to San Francisco in January of 1964 after four years of living in Kyoto, Japan. It's fantastic, four-dimensional. I can understand what is being said. Everyone speaks English, the Beatles in the air for the first time, a great colorful buzz. Soon after she returned, the poet Lou Welch introduced her to painter, Buddhist, and all-around woodsman Jack Boyce. They would marry in 1965. The same year, Joanne took part in the Berkeley Poetry Conference, reading alongside John Wieners, Robert Creeley, Charles Olson, and Ted Berrigan, among others. In February of 1966, the couple went to Europe for nine months. They visited the Uffizi, the Louvre, and other venerable museums filled with the old masters. They also managed to meet up with other poets during the trip, including Larry Fagan and Tom Clark in Paris. At this time, Joanne and Jack were also collaborating on a series of paintings and poems titled The Imaginary Apparitions. Lines from her poems were sometimes written on the back of his paintings. Joanne would later include her half of this sequence in the book Places to Go, parts of which can be read as a symbolic and dreamlike retelling of this long trip. Joanne once told me she saw this as a sort of counterbalance to her four years spent in Japan. When I asked her how they could afford to stay for so long, she stressed the importance of keeping a budget and cooking meals at home before going out. Joanne and Jack had decided to move to New York City immediately following their time in Europe. Joanne wrote of this period in a memoir of her friendship with Ann Waldman titled The Early Years, 1965 to 1970. And this was where the art was happening or had happened. I remember Jack helped make frames for a show of Morandi's work, but I never saw much art in New York City at the time. We had just come from nine months of looking at the history of Western art in Europe, as outlined in one of Jack's classes. It was a focused and thorough trip. After some hunting, we found a loft on the corner of Grand and Green in the Garrett District. Jack partitioned it off with giant timbers and put in a wood-burning coal stove and sleeping loft. We spent almost a year there. Jack Smith, the crazed underground filmmaker, lived upstairs, and he called us the rabbits. We were timid and quiet, 
living a California lifestyle, someone commented once. The couple also make a brief cameo in Ted Berrigan's classic poem, Many Happy Returns. Who on earth would kill for love? Who wouldn't? Joanne and Jack will feed you today because Anne and Lewis are on the wing as, but not like, always. Joanne had included poems by Lewis Warsh in an issue of Wild Dog, a mimeograph she guest edited in 1965. But this year in New York helped to reinforce her connection to the second generation New York school. She also published in Angel Hair Magazine, attended openings at Ed Sanders' infamous Peace Eye Bookshop. She threw a party at her loft for Robert Duncan during one of his many reading tours, a party at which Duncan was said to have left with John Ashbery. She also once told me she was angrily confronted by Rene Ricard at Max's Kansas City. He had heard she had indiscreetly shared some information about his behavior. She said that Rene started out by saying, I don't know who you think you are. She said, I was confused where I came from. We never referred to such behavior as gossip. It was just catching up. Why am I so jealous of Joanne having been disciplined by Rene Ricard? I wanted to share a poem that sketches Joanne's time in New York. Prose sometimes feels dry when compared to the tone one can release through the compression of poetry. It's an unpublished poem by Alice Notley, written shortly after Joanne's death. It's titled, The Fortune Teller. You have no body, even when it hurts so much. Some matter has arranged to be you, hasn't it? Then you go to the fortune teller. I went to several when young. One even had a membrane over her iris, but they didn't understand me as well as I did. Oh, I was just curious. Remember signs. What remember? I remember my imagination houses I visit, non-existent, or a grotto. No, remember when Joanne got me to write a collaborative note with her and leave it in a tree for Donald Allen, who was feeling bad. We rolled it up, a scroll tied with ribbon. Mostly she made me shy at some point, I realized, though. She liked human niceness more than I, the scroll. She liked surprise birthday parties. What I liked was her voice. I never knew what she and Bob Creeley were going on about. I was 25. Later, she said, everyone in Bellinas loved me. I know that isn't true. And Philip loved her so much. Did she really not know that? Batty, inexorable logic. I've said all these things before. Like when suddenly her aesthetic was changing from Duncanism and Ted wanted her for the New York school. Some part of her joined it, remaining Joanne. But I remember that moment when Ted, Bob, and Tom Clark all seemed to be courting her aesthetically. She had such brilliance, and one wanted her to write like one. She would always follow her voice. And Louis Warsh, she's becoming more autobiographical. No, she wasn't. She was doing mind, nature, voice, particular to person slash life, finds expression as that flicker, bird as mind, of no god, drifting coastal moment. You were so beautiful, and I'm remembering how right before Ted died, he placed new books on shelf by bed by Joanne, Joe Chiravolo, and Anselm Hollow, and said, I have a generation, born 1934. I'm sorry, I'm just crying. 
In the end, chronology is the only marker Joanne could trust, so for Ted to place her among these other poets born in 1934 feels as close to naming or allegiance as she could comfortably be. I love that what Alice admits to loving most is her voice. She accuses Tom, Bob, and Ted of being possessive, but then becomes possessive herself regarding what she thinks Joanne's new work was accomplishing. After living in San Francisco for 18 years, I find Notley's use of the word Duncanism so refreshing, so therapeutic. No doubt, Joanne's tight friendship with Philip Whalen was also of primary interest to the New York poets. In 1967, after deciding to move back to San Francisco, I was too much of a West Coast person, she says. She receives a letter from Philip Whalen encouraging her move back to the West Coast. New York as a center went to pot when the living theater got busted. Then Frank O'Hara died, and that really finished it. New York may make a comeback later, but like all big cities, they have this drive on to throw out the poor people, no lofts and no slums, and no place for the scholar, the musician, painter, or poet. So all of us have got to figure out how to stay alive in the country. I'm very scared by the official reaction to the riots in America. The cops and the government are really scared, and so are all property owners. If they get scared enough, there'll be a fascist revolution in the USA. In 1968, after returning to live in San Francisco, Joanne completed a residency at the National Center for Experimental Television in San Francisco, NCET. Collaborative videos and films using synchronized psychedelic visuals, sound loops, and feedback were created between poets, painters, musicians, and filmmakers, and eventually shown on public television, KQED. The producer behind the project, Bryce Howard, also worked on video vignettes with Charles Olson and Robert Creeley. Joanne's project was Descartes, an 11-minute black-and-white video based on her poem, Descartes and the Splendor of, a real drama of everyday life in six parts. I want to stress that this poem was written to be filmed. Her principal collaborators were filmmaker Lauren Sears and musician Richard Felciano. In an essay titled Joanne Kiger, Descartes and Sp the Splendor of, Bridging Dualisms Through Collaboration and Experimentation, Theorist Jane Falk writes, quote, Kiger's most radical move is to feminize Descartes, shown dramatically in her video production. She provides the voiceover, simultaneously narrating and acting out her poem as she takes on the role of both a contemporary woman, Descartes, and Mother God. Her powerful and hieratic female voice is an important and effective part of her parody. There is an interesting exchange in a 1974 interview in which Joanne hints at her objective in combining poetry, philosophy, film, and television. Well, I was in television for a year. I wrote that Descartes piece in Places to Go for Television. It was put into six sections, and each section was acted out with all this fancy video treatment. You could see five or six eyes or persons simultaneously. But does that distract from the content of the poetry? 
Well, the content is connected to all the other aspects. I know there was a feeling that poetry was needing a helping hand when music came up. You mean rock and roll? Yeah, but I think poetry is strong enough. I don't think some poets are adventuresome enough about the space they can make. It's very tidy to stay in magazines and books the rest of your life. So you'd say yes to combining the mediums. But poetry is those mediums too. Poetry is storytelling and it's acting and it's music and it's the theater. There's no definition of it before it happens. Right. Poetry has gotten stuck on the page for an awfully long time since whenever they invented printing. The most burning question I have come away with since the publication of There You Are is how did Joanne begin to conceive of such a non-motivated sense of writing, a reality made of poetry? In a 1998 interview, Joanne has asked for her perspective on the act of writing. Accepting that the mind is okay as it is. I don't have an official Buddhist teacher. I go through phases of practicing meditation on a daily scale and then not doing it for a long time and then going back to it. But you know, it's not practice that's ultimately rejected. You just get out of the tempo of doing it. You find that when you finally sit or practice meditation, everything about you slows down. Your content becomes more accessible. It goes back to Trungpa's dictum, first thought, best thought. So what arises comes out, then the next thing arises, and so you put that down. You trust that your mind is shapely and that existence has a flow of its own. It's not trying to restructure your thinking to come to conclusions. A hierarchical sense of where you are starts to fade away. In its simplest focus, that's how I see it. I think we can trace this position farther back than her involvement with Trungpa, Naropa, etc. It goes all the way back to her study of philosophy at the University of Santa Barbara with Professor Paul Wienpaul in the mid-1950s. Then I went on to UC Santa Barbara where I had some more excellent teachers. Hugh Kenner, who taught Ezra Pound, and Paul Wienpaul, who taught Wittgenstein and Heidegger. He showed us how Heidegger's nothing was the bridge into D.T. Suzuki's nothingness. D.T. Suzuki talks about nothing or emptiness as really being something. Joanne took the leap into Zazen, or sitting practice, in 1959 after moving into the East West House, a communal home in San Francisco set up for people interested in studying Buddhism, Buddhist texts, Japanese, and actually visiting Japan. It was modeled after the Institute for Asian Studies, which was founded by Alan Watts. As Joanne explains it, they had sort of loosened their constraints and allowed women and other non-Japan-directed people to live there. But by then, I was planning on going to Japan. Close by, there was the Soto Buddhist Temple where Suzuki Roshi was invited to come and be the priest for the Japanese community in the spring of 1959. He started Zen Zazen practice in the morning, open to everyone. He became the catalyst for the beginning of the Zen Center in San Francisco. I learned to sit there during the year I spent at the East-West House before going to Japan. I was feeling bereft after Joanne's death, and one day, scanning our bookshelves, 
found that my partner Brian owned Suzuki Roshi's classic text on sitting zazen, Zen mind, beginner's mind. I instinctively pulled out our one red meditation cushion before beginning to read. This worked out perfectly as it is nearly impossible to read this book without setting Suzuki Roshi's wisdom against your own meditation practice. What he describes more than anything is the necessity of returning to the path, returning to a pattern of breathing when you become distracted. This is from his text. To stop your mind does not mean to stop the activities of mind. It means your mind pervades your whole body. With your full mind, you form the mudra in your hands. There is no enlightenment without a practice that invites constant recalibration. As I continued reading, I discovered that the best example of the supreme equanimity Suzuki describes was in fact Joanne's collected poetry. Reading through Zen mind, beginner's mind, I was reminded of Joanne always saying I had to get over whether this was a good poem or a bad poem. Just keep writing. She stressed this even more at the end of her life when she felt my ego could finally handle letting go of it. The following is lifted from a section of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, titled Right Understanding, The Quality of Being. For us, there is no need to be bothered by calmness or activity, stillness or movement. When you do something, if you fix your mind on the activity with some confidence, the quality of your state of mind is the activity itself. When you are concentrated on the quality of your being, you are prepared for the activity. Movement is nothing but the quality of our being. When we do zazen, the quality of our calm, steady, serene sitting is the quality of the immense activity of being itself. If you lose the spirit of repetition, it will become quite difficult. But it will not be difficult if you are full of strength and vitality. Anyway, we cannot keep still. We have to do something. So, if you do something, you should be very observant and careful and alert. Our way is to put the bread in the oven and watch it carefully. These claims relate to the practice of poetry in the sense that a poet is always a poet, self-appointed or not, and, this will, and thus will be charting what they feel to be poetry. If you write something wonderful, don't cling to it. Conversely, if you become disappointed with a composition, don't cling to it. Part of this training seems to be acceptance of starting over. We need only look at a few of Joanne's book titles to realize her obsession with locating her self in time. About now, again, just space, all this every day, going on and as ever. In Joanne's last interview, she says, one is more in time one moment after another, like a great cascade of shuffled cards falling through the air. Alice Notley has written well of this sensation in her work. Kiger's major preoccupation is the attainment in quotidian life of that state where things and one are unveiled. If Joanne asked you to arrive at her house at 11.30 for lunch and you got a late start or made a wrong turn driving over Mount Tamalpais, she wouldn't let you off the hook immediately. She always had black ink pens and colored pencils and clipboards set out for that day's collaborations. More than once, when I had arrived late, I would find a clipboard with paper displayed prominently 
than gorgeous large black calligraphy stating 1150, still waiting, sometimes with a crippling line added regarding our lateness. She remained on the pulse of the present moment, so the day becomes a wall to break the poem against, and each time it disperses differently. The lines in the tide brush up against one another. They pinpoint the intrigue like a soundtrack for film. No beginning or end in a realm that exists, where history is an illusion and the poem is granted its own existence. Joanne was so attentive to time, I have begun to wonder if she was ever bound by its constraints. Does this escape constitute a form of enlightenment? I find the dream of such agency servicing in her work fairly early, in the last piece from a serial poem titled Joanne, published in 1970 by Angel Hair Books. In the corner, don't you worry, the tune's familiar, weeping and laughing, I leave my love behind. What I wanted to say was in the broad, sweeping form of being there. I am walking up the path. I come home and wash my hair. I am bereft. I dissolve quickly. I am everybody. Again, we are witness to a kind of dispersal. I leave my love behind. This brings me back to Jack Spicer's influence on Joanne's practice. In particular, his famous letter to Robin Blazer, printed in the middle of his book, Admonitions. In this letter, he reaffirms his belief in the unrelenting connection and reverberation between poems. The trick, naturally, is what Duncan learned years ago and tried to teach us, not to search for the perfect poem, but to let your way of writing of the moment go along its own paths, explore and retreat, but never be fully realized, confined within the boundaries of one poem. This is where we were wrong and he was right, but he complicated things for us by saying there is no such thing as good or bad poetry. There is but not in relation to the single poem. There really is no single poem. Poems should echo and re-echo against each other. They should create resonances. They cannot live alone any more than we can. Things fit together. We knew that. It is the principle of magic. Two inconsequential things can combine together to become a consequence. This is true of poems, too. A poem is never to be judged by itself alone. This is the most important letter you have ever received. Love, Jack. This was published in 1957, the year Joanne moved from Santa Barbara to San Francisco. It would seem this information served her well, especially the bit about letting your way of writing of the moment go along its own paths, but never be confined within the boundaries of the poem. In an interview from 1997 with Dale Smith and Michael Price, Joanne speaks about taking Spicer's practice to heart. That's when you understand that words have their own independent existence. They say what they want to. Like Spicer is saying, you are just the medium, the funnel for the words to go through. They have their own lineage, returning through you, the magic syllables, seed syllables. 
this circular understanding of lineage, the words being returned through another body, gave such authority to her later work. I am thinking in particular of this piece from On Time, titled Post-Extinction. How could you forget me so quickly? But the way you are reached, touched, awakened by the world continues. The same way you, yourself, pass along a freely given lineage of existence. Each one, everything, perfect as is. Like the moon going down never really leaves the sky. So existence never quits, never began, never ended. You see, in the moment, so sorry, it will never be like this again. But when has the present ever been singular? Everything with a language of distinction, with sorrow, with melancholy, with sweet appreciation of an extinguished future, when water becomes a state of being. September 2014. She arrived in Bolinas in the spring of 1969 after shorter stays up the coast in Bodega Bay and Lagunitas. Although there were a few writers like Bill Brown and Tom Clark already living in Bolinas, it was after Joanne's arrival that other poets and artists began to arrive en masse, some to live and others to visit. The esteemed list includes Robert Creeley, Jim Carroll, Bill Berkson, Lewis and Phoebe McAdams, Richard Brodigan, Eva Beauregard, David Meltzer, Donald Gurevich, Bobby Louise Hawkins, Anne Waldman, Duncan McNaughton, Philip Whalen, Arthur Okamura, Joe Brainerd, and Ken Botto. This history has largely been told in fits and starts. Bellinas offered an alternative lifestyle, one that was sought at that time in the late 60s and early 70s a small coastal town of about 500 inhabitants at the time. It offered rural living, the hippies versus the surfers for softball teams, and in large letters painted on the seawall, New York refugees go home. The pictures of those years have everyone sitting on the ground, shoulder high long grasses and long hair, on Indian print bedspreads. We could sit all afternoon with bottles of wine and smokes, in conversation and poetry, moving along with the path of the sun. Nobody sits on the ground anymore. Bellinas was a destination point. Anne Waldman visited Bellinas soon after Joanne first arrived. So much vibrated out of Bellinas, it was the most intense collection of poets in one place, not around an academic or university scene, so therefore more visionary, utopian. Of course, about now, Joanne's collected poems offer the most long-lasting, intimate, day-to-day -day chronicle of life in Bellinas. She lived there from 1969 to 2017, nearly 50 years, with frequent and extended trips all over Mexico. Though impossible to ever capture the essence of Joanne Kiger, there is a tiny poem of Robert Creeley's that comes close. This is lifted from his 1974 collection, 30 Things. Photo for Joanne. They say a woman passes at the edge of the house, turning the corner, leaves a very vivid sense after her of having been there.
Thank you. That was Cedar Saigo giving his talk, Not Free from the Memory of Others, a lecture on Joanne Elizabeth Kiger. Saigo's book of collected Bagley Wright lectures, Guard the Mysteries, is forthcoming from Wave Books in June 2021 and is available for pre-order at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectures.org, for more information about these and other lectures by Joshua Beckman, Dorothy Alasky, Timothy Donnelly, Srikanth Reddy, Terence Hayes, Rachel Zucker, Cedar Saigo, Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarno, and Douglas Kearney, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker. Thank you to Poets House and to Stephen Motika for curating this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions, from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.